welcome. I think we talked about that last Friday. Welcome to the I've been gone the last couple of weeks. A uh, couple vacation broadcasting sporadically. Things of that nature. Thanks for bearing with me. I had a great vacation there. Had a couple of business trips thrown in there too unexpectedly. Uh, for our new clients that are listening, and we have a couple of them there. I want to thank you for listening, and I love you doing more work with you. I got a phone call today for some maritime marine terminals training, which is, hey, not too many people doing that in the Northeast in private industry like me. So uh, if you want to work with us, 845-269-5772 or jim at safetywars.com. Uh, we're transferring over emails, servers, and all that other stuff this week. So uh, you're better off just email, uh, text messaging me at 845-269-5772. I'm more likely to get that uh, text than I am email probably until we get things sorted out. That's our building capacity here. So as I was saying last Friday, if you tuned in, uh, we're, no, uh, that's our tradition. September is disaster preparation month. We had stayed when I left corporate America, uh, we had, uh, started, uh, the whole thing with, uh, where we were going to disaster preparation. If you're one of those, uh, three to 5% of the people who actually go out and buy, uh, like X groceries or maybe extra batteries, maybe you have a generator, consider yourself a prepper, right? Sort of thing. You don't have to go nuts, just simple, basic things. And as I always say, disaster preparation is about doing things as you're able to over time. You're not going to prepare for all disasters in two days. Now, when you consider, no, we're going to talk about water, for example. The average uh, uh, state in a house maybe runs at a, at a gallon a minute. Well, guess what? If you're going to, if you have five people in the house and you want to prep for, uh, no, 30 days, now you're talking about uh, 150 gallons of water minimum, bare minimum. How long is that going to take? It's going to be like close to two hours. Oh, no, probably or around two hours to get all that water together. So we're talking, it's an ongoing process. I know of a couple of families who got really involved in disaster preparation, and what were they doing? They were uh, they set up themselves up one time a year, one thing a year, one project a year. We're going to do this this year. After three or four years, they ended up having a very high capacity uh, type situation where they were prepared for almost anything. So, what are we talking about tonight? We're hearing all of this stuff, the threats of COVID lockdowns, the threats of uh, uh, mask 
where now, uh, like for example, getting on planes, they're talking about masks. There's rumors now, and everything else going on. Some people in the background saying, hey, this is what's going to happen. So we're going to talk about that tonight. And I uh, prepared some stuff here on this. So, so we're going to talk about biological safety, bioterrorism, pandemics. Plus, we have a PowerPoint presentation we're going to have for you here. So it's always a store subject for me and that we're involved in a lot of our projects. Just remind everyone some of my experience with dealing with biological safety, bioterrorism, pandemics. I think we all have. We're, you're a safety professional for the last three and a half years. You know about pandemics. That's all of us. It's ubiquitous throughout the entire industry. Now, what if now before that, uh, just for the record, I am a uh, certified indoor environmentalist, which uh, from the uh, American Conference of Accreditation, ACAC, and also certified safety professional, certified hazardous materials manager. Before that, how did I get really involved in biological safety? I was on a project in Spring Lake, New Jersey. That was my first one, where we had the municipal building. I believe this was 1997. The municipal building, which was uh, also doubled back then as a Masonic Lodge, I don't know if that's still true, had a uh, bird infestation. You go back to probably in the 1940s, it was just a complete mess. My boss puts me out on that, uh, Jeff Holcott, and he says, hey, uh, you're going to be handling this. So I got some experience in that that way. And we did a couple of other little mold jobs here and there. And then eventually in 2000, because of my experience with that and some other stuff going on, in 2001, October, I was called in from my boss on the anthrax cleanups for CVS and NBC. If you really wanted to go and learn something about what happened with specific jobs, the National uh, uh, Science Foundation has some publications out on it. Also, the uh, Oprah Magazine, talking about women in crisis, I believe was uh, in 2009, had out an article on Casey Chamberlain, one of the victims here of whoever committed the uh, anthrax mailings and everything. And... So what was my, what did I learn from this? I learned from this is that you have to be responsible for yourself. The government was ill-prepared. And I just, you call this an indictment, call this whatever you want. I'm just putting it out there. I think uh, after what we were dealing with over the last three and a half years, and it's been a lot more other cases here going on, a lot of other things we're going to talk about. I mean, how could, no, uh, conflicting information. They didn't know what they were dealing with. They had established protocols for dealing with a SARS COVID uh, type of thing, uh, virus. Things were forgotten. Things were not prepared. Not enough masks, not enough N95 respirators, not enough, to, you know, the whole thing. It all comes down to this the public felt, and through the issue intention cycle, which we discussed on this program a couple of times, that this was all taken care of. This is all resolved. We don't have to worry about any of this stuff because it wasn't in the news. It wasn't in the public forefront. After I got my experiences with the anthrax stuff, I, every political campaign, every politician I spoke to, people in power 
power. I mean, very high level villain power uh, in and around New York and New Jersey. They looked at you like you had three heads. Oh, well, we're no problem here. We're all prepared. I'm not going to mention names, but let's just say they are extremely well-known politicians in the state of New Jersey. And uh, they went to some prominence here. That oh, And again, in one ear, out the other ear. Nothing ever mattered here with them. And, um, you know, maybe that was the wrong avenue. I kind of like think that if I had pressed this a little bit longer, that's always in the back of your mind, that maybe we would have been better prepared. Maybe I didn't get to the right person. And one of the reasons why we have Safety Wars, this podcast, this video, this whatever we're calling it, streaming service, the website, the, the whole thing, is because of uh, this thing. Maybe to spread the word, a little bit of knowledge out there. Knowledge is power, we all know. And getting everybody there, not only is it about hop. By the way, uh, the Accidental Safety Pro had Scott Geller on the previous interview on here, if you're listening on Safety FM. Great guy. I met him, but he's obviously a great guy, and he identified what the big problem was with behavior-based safety, where we're going to have on and off, right? managed like uh, by engineers. His words, not mine. Yes or no, we put in a system and everything's good. That's not how human beings are. And that was his point on that interview here. Human beings are human beings. They're not going to be machines. They're unpredictable and everything else. So after 9-11... There was a threat of a worldwide pandemic. They were worried about secure, severe acute respiratory syndrome, syndrome, SARS, which is another kind of coronavirus. That was in roughly 2003. But even before that, we had, and especially in the New York area, the West Nile virus. And I didn't realize this until I looked it up today. It caused 284 deaths, pardon me, nationwide. Then... Anthrax in 2001, 22 cases of cutaneous anthrax, and some of them with inhalation anthrax, five of them ended up dying. Uh, officially, no one was ever convicted. However, it was traced back to a research lab. And at, you can look back on, I did an interview in 2009, I believe it was, on Dr. Carol's couch uh, from Dr. Carol Lieberman, uh, Lieberman, I believe that's her name, uh, interviewed me for the whole hour. Uh, some of my some of my thoughts on there. As for uh, no one was ever officially convicted, but it was traced back to a research lab. I had done some of my own research, and there is some evidence to, to a couple of the victims here that, that they always thought it was a disgruntled employee got involved with this stuff over at the uh, American Media uh, Building down in Florida. So I can't confirm, deny that. I, I didn't collect the information myself, but that's what I was told. So we had SARS, 2003, 2006. There was a mumps out for 2006, an E. coli and salmonella break. In 2007, Zeta Central is part of this project. I was one of the safety professionals. Central New Jersey uh, pharmaceutical plant spent a reported $2 million privately funded, not government money, on a flu vaccine plant in Swiftwater, Pennsylvania. Then 
this pandemic where we were going to have the avian flu, this kind of flu, H1N1 flu, H1N5 flu, and all this other stuff was going on. They real uh, what they were predicting, especially after 9-11, what ended up happening is that did not pan out. And our former governor, John Corzine, on the way out of office, along with the legislature, passed mandatory vaccinations for school-aged children, right, uh, with that. So certain school-aged children. So it was like a payback. So this is where it comes down to with the government, at least on the modern times the last 25 years where people started to get distrustful of the government when it come came to this was over this stuff especially in the new york and new jersey area then 2009 you had the swine flu which worldwide killed 20 12,200 people 2012 whooping cause worldwide 160,700 deaths and then mers which was another uh, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, uh, another coronavirus, 858 deaths, 1,000 sick. 2014, I was also involved in this one uh, with the state of New Jersey. Uh, I was working for one of their emergency response contractors. We got pulled in to consult on the Ebola virus, and that led to 4,000 deaths when a new vaccine was developed. And then Zika, who could forget Zika, which causes... Uh, uh, encephalopathy, microencephalopathy in infants uh, in 2016, and then, of course, 2020 COVID-19. So you would think with all this stuff going on that perhaps, and it's easier to throw stones and get annoyed and every, I get, you know, but what happened was there was not really a system set up to confront this stuff. Now, what people forget in the United States, you have what is called the Stafford Act, and there are a couple of other laws that basically devolves emergency response down, unless it's like a nuclear war, devolves it down to the local level. And the federal government is more or less like a consultant that comes in, sort of like when there is a disaster that hits, OSHA is suspended, and OSHA then goes into the consulting role. That's sort of like the same thing here. So... Uh, everything's evolved down to the local level. And the government adds as a consultant. And this is where people like Dr. Fauci uh, goes out there and he said, well, I make recommendations and I set guidelines, I, but it's the local people that have got to handle it. Yes, that's true. And that's not what we need here. We need, no, we, that's not what we need to hear. Every state has something different going on. Perhaps the one that may, maybe now that things have calmed down a little bit, they had the opportunity to go and pass further legislation out here and actually maybe make things more uh, effective rather than a knee-jerk reaction, that sort of thing. But didn't happen yet. Call your congressman, call your senators. So uh, what what ended up after that? After that, what does it come down to? The government was caught flat-footed. I think that's pretty obvious. Uh, uh, 2010, pandemic, 2010, pandemic protection pretty much went out the window, uh, evidenced by the lack of appropriate PPE, personal protective equipment, in the case uh, for healthcare workers, NIOSH rated N95 masks. But we'll talk about what that's about in a few minutes here. 
So we need to be prepared ourselves, regardless of what the government does. We know that the government is the government. And I had pointed out uh, way back in the day that when we, when I was uh, an advocate for preparedness with, in politics, that once money gets distributed, once uh, the feds get involved, again, there's a little bit of politics here, but hey, over 1.2 million dead from COVID. Now we have a situation here where certain people who are politically connected are going to get the help that they need. This is evidence. Look at what we had went through up here in my home, current home state of New York. My uh, right, I, can, I guess I can call the adopted hometown of Clarkstown, New York. We got a lot of the focus here in Clarkstown because we were one of the nexuses of the COVID nineteen pandemic. We had a governor at the time, Governor Andrew Cuomo, uh, who was out there. Hey, we need respirator. We need this. They sent up a hospital ship from the U.S. Navy up here. We were building emergency hospitals. I was working with Conti Federal Services, building an emergency hospital right over here in uh, Bergen County, New Jersey. Uh, that was Dave Holcott, Jeff Holcott, who I mentioned before. That was his son that hooked me up with that project here. And we were it was cool. We were making the hospital out of Lego blocks. It was industrial. They're huge, huge. Right, one by six or one by eight, something like that. Huge blocks, and everything along those lines. Are, you know, we were all into that, increasing capacity and everything else. So again, we were all caught off guard here. Now the question is, what are you going to do? And that's what the whole thing is. What I'm here about is maybe changing your thinking a little bit. And I want you to share this with whomever, whoever you want to share it with. We're going to go to commercial break right now. And we'll come back with our information here. Need to grab something to drink. In the professional safety community, communication and planning are just a few keys to your program's success. The question many practitioners have is, where do I start? Dr. Jay Allen, the creator of the Safety FM platform and host of the Rated R Safety Show, has built a global foundation to help you along the way. Go to safetyfm.com and listen to some of the industry's best and most involved professionals, including Blaine Hoffman with the Safety Pro, Sam Goodman with the Hop Nerd, Sheldon Primus with the Safety Consultant, Jim Pozell with Steve Wars, Emily Elrod with Unapologetically Bold, and many others. As individuals, we can do great things, but as a team, we become amazing. Dial into safetyfm.com today and surround yourself with a powerful force of knowledge and support. You are listening to Safety Wars. Tomorrow's Safety Today. 
Is your safety training old, stale, and hackneyed? Is your safety trainer still preaching a warped version of behavior-based safety? How about safety training that actually addresses your hazards in your workplaces and is not standardized baloney from 25 years ago? Contact the Safety Wars team at safetywars.com or call Jim Polzel at 845-269-5772. Remember, if you're receiving this message, you are the solution to unsafe workplaces. All right, sorry about that. Normally, I have some water here, and uh, if I didn't go and get the water, we we're going to have an issue. Dead air. I mean, it sucks. Anyway, what does it come down to? Where do we start with all this stuff? We start by asking, real simple, what is safe? We uh, One of the th uh, overall themes here, all of Safety FM, what is safe? I'm sure, and this is what the public has, what safe is, right? And it's our job as safety professionals to go out there and educate a little bit. We've all seen the, the sign. Our goal is zero accidents, zero illnesses, or and zero in, injuries. Or we have heard, the I, we have worked X number of days without an injury, and then some companies, major oil companies, the total recordable incident rates, and all this other stuff, rolling thing, and they go down there, we're going to beat you up, we're going to beat you up on it. And it is very disconcerting. This is a public hazard safe. Safe is zero. And even subconsciously, above, anything above zero is unsafe. That's not really where we're at here. So what are we to do? So any of the human organizational uh, performance practices Insurers out there, safety 2.0, safety differently, whatever we're calling it. We need, to, we, what do we use? Safety is controls, safeguarding, capacity. Some might call it capacity. Jay Allen calls it capacity. And resilience, meaning the capacity to withstand and recover quickly from difficulties. Not to get morbid here, but the numbers we're playing with here did not lead to a consistent standard for what the public Emergency, what's an emergency or not? Just a whole bunch of opinions. What are we talking about? We're talking about well, at what point do, is, do, we, do these protocols, do these uh, procedures and everything else kick in with the COVID stuff? Well, in some places, I tell you, one person uh, uh, died, right? One or two people die in a workplace. That's a tragedy. Obviously, let's, be, let's face it. But with that, what do we do? Do we shut down a whole society? One or two deaths? Or now we're up to something like 300 or 400 deaths a month from COVID. We're not shutting things down. It's a lot less than what there were, tens of thousands of deaths at one point a month or whatever, like 100,000 deaths a month. But there's no, when you have, don't have a standard, if you say, well, if two people die here because of COVID, automatically we're going to have all these lockdowns. Well, what about context? Were they sick to begin with? Did they have health issues? What was their other situation? Everything else that goes on into that getting quote unquote sick. I don't know. This is what happens is nobody followed what was going on. In the Northeast, we had a problem. And then in the South, and hey, while we're in the lockdowns in the Northeast, but not because we got to be lockdowns in the Midwest and in Texas where there aren't any issues. And then people are like, well, why are we in lockdown? This is an issue here. And all the stuff going on and on and on. We had nothing in there. We had no, nothing was safe. So 
we're going to talk about, rather than these numbers games, safety is controls. Safety is resilience. And we're going to go into what some of that is. The other issue that we talk about here on the network is risk. What's risk? It's a function of the likelihood of event versus the consequences. It's usually on some kind of a hazard, what we call hazard matrix table. You can Google that. So if you have a high likelihood event and high consequences, you're in the red part of that hit. No, red. No, red alert. By the way, tomorrow's Star Trek Day, so we'll be talking about that probably. Low and what do you have? Low likelihood, low consequence? You're going to be in the green area. Not really a thing. Low, hey, this isn't going to happen. If it does, low consequences. So on a personal level, you have to figure out what where you're at. So if you have if you're a sick person, older person, usually you're genuinely speaking going to be at a higher risk than a younger person, no comorbidities. So now, now you have two different risk lists, right? Now, how are we going to come up with some type of standard with that? That's another question. And again, I have my own risk tolerance. I don't want to get sick. I don't want to see anybody sick. So I, I took precautions. Now, this is where the debate comes into place. What controls do we have in place? Are the numbers that we're dealing with under or over reporting? Because there was an incentive, especially if you're on a project, let's say a construction job. Well, guess what? If I report that I have COVID, they're going to shut down the job and all these people are going to be out of work, including me. Notice. Or uh, no, all those lines. So things go underreported. That's what the incentive is with this. We learned a lot about human organizational performance, at least I did during the pandemic. And we're going on. Uh, how about sovereign immunity? We talked about sovereignty with this. Public officials, let's go back to that hazard matrix table. Your public health official making a decision. And you know your decision is not going to have personal consequences necessarily. You think that's going to impact your decision? This is what where sovereign immunity becomes into, uh, comes into play. So, for example, if you're a public school teacher... You are treated differently than regular industry in a lot of places. And if you want to talk about people who got really short, they talk to your corrections officers. And you get the normal public health uh, of uh, workplace health and safety uh, people like New York Fesh or New Jersey P OSHA. All hey, you push off to the side. Yeah, but what about this? What about this? What about this? Okay, well, what's, well, Jim, what's your point? My point is real simple. They have no consequences what they do. Let's say that you're in industry. You're dealing with an airborne virus in industry. What kind of respiratory protection and procedures are you going to have in place? Are you going to tell everybody, oh, just go out and get one of those little paper imitation masks that look good, buy them for about a quarter a piece at your local hardware store? Are you going to do that or 
are you going to tell them, hey, we need an N95 respirator? Here's an N95 respirator right, right here. Right? We'll talk about that. Filtering face feasts. Are we going to need respiratory training? Are we going to need fit testing? Uh, medical stuff, workups. What, you're going to need that. If you're, in, if you're doing that in private industry, you're going to get sued. You're going to be held liable. There's a good chance you're going to be decredentialed uh, with this if you're acting that reckless and everything else. Government does it. And you have to have that when you're hearing instructions from any public official. I went back when we were talking about the East Palestine, uh, uh, East Palestine situation with the train wreck. A couple of questions you have to ask. Is it safe? Right. What are you basing that on? It's safe or not. Right. What kind of source you're using? What kind of, uh, did you, uh, you know, uh, how are you able to determine this stuff and, you know, things of that nature. And then the last one is, well, did you actually measure for all of this? Usually government officials will fail on the fourth one. Now, what ends up have, happening with biologicals is this. There is no sort of exposure limit, permissible exposure limit, recommended exposure limit, threshold limit value, uh, nationally air quality standard, nothing like that. What could kill me Maybe okay for you. In reality, sampling for a virus wasn't possible until one third, the end, one third of the way through the pandemic. They did not even have a protocol that. So like we had to deal with the anthrax cleanups and some of the other biological cleanups. You have zero threshold. You can't have anything. So everything all uh, in there. Now, what happens is this. issues guidelines. It's all that they do. Now, what happens with the guidelines? My family member died because you didn't care enough. You were concerned about profits. You did not even follow the guidelines and recommendations of the Centers for Disease Control. So even in the court of public opinion, uh, court of public opinion, and probably in litigation, you're probably going to win that case. But in reality, you're going to lose it with the public out there. No virus, right? No, we got into the thing. No virus was saved. Something was dangerous. And this is how uh, things were managed. So if we uh, adopt the whole zero illnesses, zero injuries, zero incident thing, you're going to fail. You're guaranteed to fail. Now, this is where it's important to adopt a different way of thinking about safety. Safety is capacity. Safety is controls. By the way, we're probably going to run overtime here. So, uh, Safety FM people, I'm sorry you picked this up on the podcast and uh, on the video streams. So, even if we have this zero threshold, COVID, I, I still hear it today. Well, we still have COVID, so it must be dangerous. And you have people walking out in the middle of open fields with uh, uh, face masks or respirators on. Happens all the time, or in their own car alone. That's one of the better ones. How do we build capacity into the system? How do we build controls in here? And resilience and everything else. I, I listed 10 things here. Social distancing, that was done. Quarantine and isolation. 
a mask, and that's controversial. Medical system. We have uh, medical recommendations that were given. I'm not making them here, but we, you could Google them. You can figure them out. Where the government said, oh, well, that doesn't work. And sure as, uh, no, uh, as soon as, no, uh, obviously they did work. Later studies came out. Okay, they weren't approved. They were being used off-label. You have vaccinations, another controversial one. Some of the vaccinations worked. Some of them didn't. Some better than others, side effects, everything else that goes in there. It's another personal protective equipment. Decontamination. We're talking personal or non-personal items, community items. Public health system. Training. Contact tracers. And healthcare uh, in, in general. What's your health situation? You have comorbidities. All of these things. There are people who I know who went out and they got into exercising because there's nothing better, nothing else to do during these lockdowns. And I mean, I know people who became personal trainers over this. I know there's uh, one of my uh, Instagram colleagues that I used to work with. Uh, she wasn't overweight to begin with, but she ended up being a fitness trainer and bodybuilder uh, with this stuff. Incredible uh, thing uh, out there because she said, look, I have to be healthy enough to do what I need to do. That family members. So you have to go and the list goes on and on and risk. What's the risk? You have to figure out what is your risk? What are you comfortable with? And I'm going to go over to the PowerPoint. We're going to do a share screen here. Do, do, do. Hold on, everybody. I'm amazed that we were able to do this. Still amazed that we're able to do this. Of the presentation from last week. So this is what we have here. Respiratory protection at emergency response and disaster sites. I put this together a couple months ago. We're going to talk about all this stuff here and everything that goes with this. But what's the big idea on all of this stuff? Don't become part of the problem and don't make your problem worse. That's it. Because now you have you multiply problems. Right? When you have become part of the problem, you're not helping the situation. So there are, are four, some things to remember with any type of hazmat, whether you're dealing with, uh, when you're uh, dealing with any of this stuff, you had the four basic routes of exposure from, and from our toxicology background, you know, inhalation, injection, contact or ingestion. Uh, people say, well, well, what's injection? And the normal thing that they talk about are needles and, things of that nature, needles, nails. But I think that it could also be uh, pressure, right, from hydraulics, air compressed air, that sort of thing. Inhalation, right, breathing, contact, getting it on your skin or ingestion where you're eating it. And by the way, uh, one of the big issues with the uh, COVID-19 stuff, at least according to one study, was that people were spreading it from hand to mouth or hand to nose contact. That's how they were getting sick. Now, that's number one. Don't get it in you. Don't get it on you, meaning contact hazard and spreading it around, and don't bring it home where you're not exposing others or destroying your own property. What are our lessons learned? If you're going to go into, uh, that's one of my lessons learned. If you're going to rely on respirators 
and exclusively and social distancing exclusively, you have to be right 100% of the time. When you put in more and more controls and more and more capacity in the system, and one thing might fail, but it'll fail safely. You uh, right? Our respirator fails, or it's not fitted right. We don't have it on right. Well, guess what? Now we have all the other stuff to help protect us: social distancing, decontamination, going on and on and on. Uh, so you have to rely on, especially with the masks. They said, "Well, the masks don't work. We only had a thirty-five percent or something like that uh, rate. Uh, uh, no, uh, no, prevented thirty-five percent, and you know all these. They come out with all these numbers." And it's along the lines of, okay, they only have 30 with that. But realize if you're relying on just respirators, you're relying on them all the time. Again and again and again, you're relying on nobody getting making a mistake, not touching their face, what they do outside, the workplace, everything else. Now, you have an error rate, right? I mean, well, what you want to do is try to fail safely. Quality of the training. There's another one. We did not have good quality training for any of this stuff. One reasons why we do what we do here is to start to offer quality training on this stuff. People who are able to make decisions, 845-269-5772. What did people listen to? People went on the internet, you know, like you're not watching this on the internet, and what do they do? They watch TikTok, they watch Instagram. I did a little thing on Facebook before we did this, way before we did this, you wouldn't believe, oh, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And uh, one of the friends in the program, Don Becker, said, hey, he has like 25 years experience with this and blah, 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 blah. Well, he doesn't know. I saw a guy and I'm an ex on the internet and I, I'm an expert in respiratory protection because I became an expert after watching a five minute long TikTok video. This is what it came down. I had a guy down the street here tell me that. I can't, uh, no, I thought I had an intelligent member of the family. They're watching TikTok, Instagram, and everything. That's where they're getting all their information. Blah, blah, blah. And then it turns out they had dead families and everything else. Uh, a horrible situation. If it looks cool, they use it. Hey, I look cool. I'm wearing a bandana like an old-fashioned outlaw from a Western a movie. I'm dressed like an outlaw. So it looks cool. So they used it. We remember all the neckerchiefs out there. So uh, work modes, right? We're talking, well, let's talk about Jens Rasmussen. You have, basically, in normal work mode, you have skills mode, low attention and familiarity with the task, very low error rate. You have the rules mode, making decisions. You get 10 times the error rate of the skills mode and the lack of knowledge mode, and where you don't know what's going on, or you're basing it on prior knowledge, you have 500 times the error rate of the rules mode. And the disaster site worker mode, let's talk about that. You're working with the disaster. You don't train, you know, even the most trained people out there will only be in what is called the rules mode. And that's always the best you can handle in an initial emergency response. Skills mode generally doesn't exist. And then you have the lack of knowledge mode where Training and prep can be better with that. You don't know what you're doing. You're not prepared or anything else. So in a disaster, especially when you're dealing with the public, you're never going to be better than the rules mode. 
right? Where you have people making decisions and you're probably going to have the lack of knowledge vote. And that's where it comes in with your public health officials to go out there and go out and actually uh, educate, prepare, set up a system, set up a system to do things. That's what we, we do here. I uh, was on the phone with a client uh, before, uh, earlier today. Hey, that's what we were setting up for him is a system. Their safety professional left and left him in the lurch and didn't do his job for like three or four years. And it was a complete nightmare. Anyway, I digress. Hierarchy of controls. This is what we've all seen. I forget who puts that. Some people say NIOSH. Some people say somewhere else. Blah, blah, blah. But I got to off the NIOSH website. What you want to try to do any type of stuff, controlling a hazard, you want to try to eliminate the hazard prior to doing any else. If you could eliminate the hazard, most effective, can we eliminate COVID-19? The answer is no, can't do it. It's out there in the environment, never went away. Replace the hazard. I don't know how to replace the hazard uh, through a substitution, but maybe you're going to put everybody in masks, right? Not in 95 restaurant, but you're going to put everybody in masks. Now that's a substitution. Now you're replacing that with all the stuff that goes on with the respirator. I think I shared the story more than one time what happened at my dear mother-in-law's funeral during COVID where someone put on a mask and had some type of seizure, something, and we had a problem. He dropped the coffin. Then you have engineering controls. This is where you need to start watching out. Um, my school uh, sister, they had someone uh, who went up there and it was the hired a pretty reputable consultant. The consultant says, "Yeah, we're going to be going out and doing this, 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 and this." Now I'm listening very closely here, and I said, "All that he's talking about is just bringing everything up to spec, which what they should be to begin, and not do not doing anything extra, no extra ventilation or anything else." So you need on your side to say that's rule. Iranians say. Or that is that is a good idea. Again, engineer, hey, it looks very impressive to go out there and gonna do this, this, and this. Well, you're supposed to be doing that anyway. Now, are you gonna be an increasing ventilation? Are we gonna be putting in some type of decontamination procedure uh, here? Where we're gonna auto decontaminate thing? We're gonna do that. Uh, all these engineering controls. What we were forced into doing was the least effective means with controlling COVID which was administrative controls where you're changing the way what people are doing. And you're relying on those people again and again and again for doing the right thing. We heard a million and one stories out there where someone took, oh, I only had the mask off for a minute. I only had the respirator off for a minute. And guess what? I got COVID from that. Oh my, oh no, I brought it home because maybe I didn't wash my hands right. Maybe I didn't do this right. Maybe I didn't do this right. Maybe I didn't. Again, this is the kind of stuff that happens with an administrative control. And go worst of all is PPE. We're going to rely on PPE. So, again, you got to rely. If you're going to be doing PPE and administrative controls, you have to guarantee that people are going to do it 100% of the time. With the public health situation with COVID, I don't think that's ever going to happen. So once this gets out there, 
with the virus. And this is where we failed. This is what the concept concept of the policymakers didn't uh, right the they didn't have this concept. If you're going to do administrative controls and PPE, which we were forced to do, I don't know what else we're going to do. Maybe there's smarter people than me. You're not. You're going to fail. You're going to have this disease spreading. When you're, that's what I say. You have to rely on the individual. You have to rely on the people out there doing the job, out there to do to do this stuff right. And the people are going to fail. They're human beings. Now, what was happening? The shame. The shame stuff. Where, oh, you're sick because you weren't doing X, Y, and Z. You were sick because you weren't doing this. Blah, blah, blah. Not, not reasonable. Attended Americans versus Americans. And when you, uh, the other thing is this. People do not, if you're a safety professional, you should know this. People do not want to go out there and be told what to do. Is this any big surprise? Go back during the Spanish flu and go and you check things out on the Spanish flu. You go out there, you go out there, old newspaper clippings. They could have been written in 2021, 2022. People not wearing masks, people not wearing face coverings. People wearing restrooms improperly. People not caring about it. Again, because, hey, we leave us alone. And this is the other thing, going back to risk. You had folks out there that said, well, I don't have any risk. So, well, yeah, but your coworker might. Maybe you should try to do the right thing. Maybe you're sick. You don't realize you're sick. And that's the other issue with COVID. You don't realize you're sick. Maybe you should do X, Y, and Z. Oh, well, I'm not doing it. Who the hell are they? And we still get that out there with that. People don't care about their co-workers. We, we have people. People are out there under normal conditions. We were covered on this show all the time. Going out there, getting killed at work. And the supervisor is like, oh, that's just the way it is. We got people getting convicted. Guy in Colorado last week waiting for sentencing. Uh, or was it doing so? But anyway, all that other stuff. And you think this is going to be any different? That Hey, I don't want to be surprised. What are you going to do about it? You need to figure out what you're going to do about it if you're a safety professional. We'll talk about that. So we have what we want. Here we have left of the bang and right of the bang. Here. So left of the bang is everything that we need to consider during a disaster preparation type thing. Situational awareness, evaluation, what do we need? Equipment, hierarchy of controls, having the equipment on hand, health assessments, budgets, insurance, availability, training, personnel, prevention and security, PPE, weapon stuff, are we prepared for those? Locations, right, the testing locations for COVID, that was another one, I didn't include that, but I should have. Location. Where are they going to be? Are they going to be logistical? What are will my local community need? What kind of OSHA and local regulators? How about non-disaster related responders? Transportation, food, specifically water. My favorite is toilet paper. Yeah, they ran out of that real quick. Uh, storage, medication, uh, medical response, first aid, CPR, 40-hour hazard, all that other stuff. 
Then you have the bang, and then you have the response, the right of the bang. It's from the military. What kind of assessments are we going to do? What kind of air monitoring? How are we going to prevent being part of the problem? Do I have the right equipment and training to do the job? That should be in here. What kind of on-scene training are we going to have? Transportation, personal issues, corrective equipment versus the hazard. Do the hierarchy of controls apply? Probably not in a disaster situation. Food and water, decontamination, sanitary environment, weather, winter, all that stuff goes into that afterwards. Now, I would rather be on the left side of the bank. You no, know, here, we're going to go out there. We're going to do this. So uh, it's another way. Again, if let's say we're dealing with chemicals. Uh, toxicology comes into mind. The study of adverse events, effects of chemicals versus the amount of chemical on the human body. Could be biological, too. That varies from person to person. I'm not aware of a statistical model that they developed for COVID-19 and all of its variants out. Apparently, the net, this variant, they're hyping it at this point. I don't know if it's more or less dangerous. You have uh, Paracelsus, the father of toxicology. Why do they call him Paracelsus? Because his real name was Theophrastus von Bastus von Hohenheim. Dose versus response. For every dose, there's a response to the body. The body filters out chemicals from the liver and kidneys and different particles, right? You have the immune system and everything else for a biological. You could, and as far as chemicals are concerned, you have additive. We're, we're going to run through all of them, not necessarily biological stuff we're talking about. So how do chemicals interact with your body? You can have an additive effect. It could be cumulative from different chemicals. Potentiation, one chemical alone does not have an impact. When added to another one, the second one has a greater effect. Antagonism, where chemicals together are less hazardous. Synergistic, two chemicals come together and are greater than each separately or added together. And you have the dose-response relationship. Greater the dose, the greater the response. And you do have a thing called hormesis, where uh, if you're talking about that, this stuff, you're going to, well, what about hormesis? And that is what the basis of uh, homeopathy is, right? A little bit of a chemical will actually cause an immune response, that sort of thing. So let's say you have mul uh, multiple chemicals targeting the same organ. You're supposed to run it through here, this formula, and you're assuming an additive interaction. Exposure limits. You have many different types. OSHA PEL, permissible exposure limit. NIOSH REL, recommended exposure limit. ACGIH TLV, which is the threshold limit value. Those are the three big ones. And when you start reading SDSs and when things uh, are not necessarily uh, uh, documented or published, uh, then you go start to go into the, some of the other stuff here. Right, IDLH, LD50, lethal dose 50, LC50, lethal concentration 50. Whether it's uh, breathing, but with environmental science, it's in water. Then you have a ceiling level. Where can you find any of these exposure limits? Uh, OSHA regulations, NIOSH guide to chemical hazards, ACGIH special limit value, safety data sheets, used to be called MSDSs, and in the scientific literature. 
and you have common respiratory hazards. Now, this is why are we going through all this? If you're going to tell people to wear this, they need to know the limitations of it. That's why. And too many times we go out, and I mean, for years now, I now have to deal with, well, somebody told me that this little paper dust mask is going to protect me from XY, from the most dangerous virus that's ever existed in the history of humanity. But if it'll protect me from that, it'll protect me from restful crystalline silica in excess of 10 times the PEL, right? This is what we had to deal with. So what are some of the common respiratory hazards we see in the field? Oxygen deficiency, one. Hydrogen sulfide issues, swamp gas. Sewage treatment plants, carbon monoxide from uh, uh, incomplete, from exhaust, from internal combustion engines, smoke. And of course, we all know that those are not the only ones. So oxygen deprivation, we're going to see that in sewers. You're going to see that uh, those are the more common things in a disaster scenario, outfalls. And oxygen uh, meters, oxygen levels are only rated, uh, can only be measured in with a meter, not a lit match, not a canary or anything like that. And in general, usually in general industry or the construction industry confined space entry regulations would apply between 19.5% and 23.5%. 20.9% regular air level. 10 to 19.5% increased breathing rate. Accelerated heartbeat impaired, and I spelled that wrong, thinking and coordination. 6 to 10% nausea. Uh, That level, vomiting, lethargy, and unconsciousness. Less than 6, you're pretty much dead. You could go the other way and have an explosive atmosphere with this, over 23.5%. And that's how that looks like uh, here with uh, H2S, hydrogen sulfide, from rotting organic matter. The uh, Going on, these are all of the uh, uh, thresholds. But remember that uh, the H2S is also an olfactory inhibitor. And... Basically, it causes that once you start to get above at higher levels, between 100 and 150 uh, parts per million, all of a sudden you're not going to smell it anymore. And this is the hard thing. How do you measure that? You measure that with meters. Carbon monoxide in its purer form is not as odorless. But here we have uh, here, and we've gotten familiar with this, with the uh, national aiming, uh, the uh, no, that's not a part of that. I was going to say national ambient air quality standard. That's carbon dioxide. But uh, here we have in the home, and this is what's also been a subject of interest for the Biden administration, is on outlawing gas appliances, carbon monoxide, the different levels. The workplace limit is 35 parts per million. Uh, when you start to get higher levels, and it could be lower levels also, dizziness, nausea, fatigue, that sort of thing. Weird Al, his family, Weird Al Yankovic, and his mother and father were killed by carbon dioxide. I'm sorry, carbon monoxide from a faulty, and they had converted from fuel oil to natural gas, and apparently it wasn't cleaned from what I recall. Last time I mentioned this, Jay Allen started calling me, Jim, you do realize you have the uh, uh, Weird Al movie coming out. 
And I said, I had no idea. I, I mentioned Weird Al. Here's some th stuff from the Wood Smoke partial list and stuff. Well, I'm not reading all of them. You see all the different things. So what's PEL on those? Those a lot of those have the same target organs. Very freaking low, right? Then you have oh the World Trade Center dust. That was another kind of dust. Pulverized concrete, which is known to cause silicosis upon inhalation. Uh, restful crystalline silica. 2,500 contaminants on top of that, including asbestos, lead, mercury, and dioxin and polyhaws, right? Polycyclic aromatic compounds. All this in dust, but since they have the same target organ, you think this is going to be appropriate if you're dealing with that dust? Probably not. So now there is a difference between respirators and masks. This is where some of the confusion happens. What is a respirator? We have another overhead here. A respirator is NIOSH rated. National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health rated. By the way, who? Uh, what, what government agency is that part of? Centers for Disease Control. So this has been my uh, big peeve. We have a lot of people in the Centers for Disease Control that work with respirators. More qualified than me, I'll admit it. Much more qualified than me. Why couldn't they have anybody come out and explain this? Why didn't we have to have one person as a spokesperson up there? Why couldn't we have just one person explain all of this to us? What the differences are. So if you're a NIOSH-rated respirator, Right, need medical evaluation, that means, under the 1910-134 standard. You need training. Uh, well, in some cases, you need a supplied air respirator. And you, they need to protect you from specific things, depending on the type. Uh, you know, So basically, all respirators are not created equally. A mask is what the problem is. A mask is not NIOSH-rated, so really, they do not have to give you medical evaluation anymore. They give you a mask. You don't need training. Here, put this on. They don't supply air. How many of you people were told not to use those things in oxygen-deficient atmospheres? Not too many, I don't think. May or not may not protect you. Because why? We just explained that. You got to be using it all the time, 100% of the time. So it may, may not protect you. It may not protect the community or anything else. Uh, may protect the community. So with this one, right, no... Uh, there's no exhalation valve. So the places where I was working, they said, oh, we can't have an exhalation valve on. Uh, you know, that's a bad thing. And I tell them, well, you know, you're having problems. Um, most of my workplaces, they had problems because they didn't want to do it. Didn't want to enforce the rules. You have problems with people not wearing anything here, caring and not doing anything. So I'm, I'll care about myself, Right. With this, I'll have one with a, I'll have a P100 respirator on. I've had a P100 filtering base fees respirator. And all of this confusion, lack of training, now that's where we get people wearing masks rather than respirators. What kind of mask are we talking about this one here? Right? PPE is needed, right? Planning for respirators. You have to have a plan in place. You have to do an assessment If you uh, with this. Uh, and what's appropriate. So here we go with coronavirus. Back to 
going all the way around. Coronaviruses. 0 0.25 microns, 0 0.025 microns in diameter. That's approximate. Some a little bit bigger or low, smaller. And it travels in straight and clumps. So you folks have heard this many times. NIOSH rated respirators are rated for 0 0.3 microns. That means that the pore sizes are a lot larger. Right? They're what? 10 times larger? Something? Yeah, 10 times larger than uh, what the coronavirus is. Can they filter out lower? Yeah. How much? I don't know. It's not rated for. May it work? May it not? I don't know. Because coronavirus travels in clumps and mists. If the government said, look, those little paper masks, those little dust masks that everybody's using here, they don't work. You got to go for NIOSH respirator. They're going to ne make necessary, they're going to necessitate everybody out there to go for physicals, to go for fit testing, go for training, and everything else that goes along with it. Now, I have a sneaking suspicion. I got to put this away. I have a sneaking suspicion. That that's not that one of the reasons why they didn't recommend they sent and Fauci was oh you could don't have to wear an N95 mask mask and work and all this other stuff two things one they admitted to not having enough not enough capacity number and the ones that they did have were expired uh, the masks and respirators the 2010 that sort of deal budget cut number one and number two. If they told workplaces and OSHA said, you got to be putting these through N95 respirators, well, everybody, because it's a respiratory hazard, guess what? Would have cost a lot of money. We would have never gotten any, anything back up there, right? So all masks and respirators cause physical stress on the body. So you should have some type of medical evaluation. Case in point, I knew on paper, I could say, hey, uh, Jim, I read, I read that you can have all different types of problems if you're not medically cleared to wear a respirator. And I all knew it on paper. I read the books. I didn't. Never thought I'd see somebody put on a little paper mask identical to this one. Oh, there. And then go through and have a severe uh, medic adverse reaction. And there's also... Uh, uh, documentation that came out that said, look, some of those chemicals that the masks are made out of that are off-gassing may not be the best thing for you. I know one thing. I ran out of uh, N95 respirators. I bought them on eBay, and I got them. They smelled like uh, an Italian deli. Smelled like oregano. Abby Ferry laughed when I told her that online. Right? So, half-face respirator. Boy, isn't that a nice, handsome man there. Half-face respirator with P100 cartridges. So, this is basically what I was wearing when I was in very high areas where everybody was sick. Where I knew people were going to be sick. Yes, I have a picture of me in Stop and Shop wearing full-face respirator and at the Rockland Bakery wearing a full-face respirator. So a uh, half-face respirator with a P100 cartridge. No limitations. Does not supply oxygen. Does not work for CO and H2S. Ten times the PEL. So whatever your permissible exposure limit, if you're dealing with a chemical, times 10, that's your assigned protection factor for that respirator. And it must be fit tested, either qualitative or quantitative, 
You must have some type of medical approval. It has to be NIOSH certified. And you must use the correct cassettes or filters with your chemical. So these are P100 cartridges meant for aerosols, meant for dusts. They're not meant for gases, right? And it's non-IDLH, I mean, not immediately dangerous to life and health. And if you notice here, what am I not in this photo? I'm not shaved. So guess what? That has compromised the effectiveness of that respirator. You got to shave. We had people out there, yeah, well, I'm wearing a mask. I'm blah, 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 blah. I'm being compliant. They are wearing it down around here. Yeah. So now their nose is free. And uh, or number two is uh, they uh, have a full beard. I, I mean, like a ZZ top beard, you know, all the way down. <laughs> that sort of thing. So, again, training, discipline, all goes into capacity, making things more safer. Then you have the NPRR, uh, N95, run N NPRR, N95 or 99, right, or 100, filtering face piece respirator. Here we have one with a valve on it. They were not letting us use those. So they got all the same stuff without its for filters. We're not, uh, uh, according to uh, NIOSH, 10 times the BEL for dust and all of that, that. You can be qualitative fit tested on those. You have to have, again, if it has NIOSH written on it, even though it's that, you have to have a medical approval and everything else. And they were not allowing these because it has an exhalation valve on it. Now, uh, and the medical ones are without a valve. Now, what does N, P, and R stand for? N means no oil. P is oil-proof, and R is resistant to oil. They also have three numbers with that. And uh, 95, which 95% of particles, 0.3 microns or greater. 99, meaning 99% of particles, 0.3 microns or greater, or 100 which means 99.97% of particles, 0.3 microns or better. And if we remember, our COVID-19 uh, was at uh, 0.025, which is smaller than that pore size, where they clump together the viruses they, with a mist when they're airborne, things of that nature. Even though in theory, one virus, I'm told, could cause this. Not really. All right. And it might filter out smaller particles. That wasn't an inhalable particle. An inhalable particle is, generally speaking, less than 10 microns in diameter. Then you have the full-face respirator with P100 cartridge here. Must be quantitative fit test if you're going to get the full protection factor of 50 times the PEL. This type of respirator does not work for CO or H2S, carbon monoxide or H2S, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Does not supply oxygen, and you got to be fit tested, medical approval, has to be NIOSH certified. Now, there are respirators out there or companies that uh, advertise as respirators, or in the respirators that are not NIOSH certified. They're available on that website that uh, is named after a river. So uh, and they're for sale on there. I picked up a couple. I didn't want to show them here on the air because I don't want people to take things out of context. But unless it's a NIOSH rated, it's not legally a respirator with that. 
uh, just the way it is, guys. You can also have this, a power air for your respirator. And again, same thing, medical approval and all this other stuff works 25 to 100 times the PEL versus 15 times the PEL versus 10 times the PEL on that one. Supplied air respirator. Depending on the configuration and the operation, you have to have an outside source of air, of air, either a compressor or bottles. Depending on the configuration and everything else in there, uh, 10,000 times protection factor, meaning you take that PEL and you multiply it by 10,000. You also have what is called a blast hood or hood-type respirator. This uh, particular gentleman is abrasive blasting. We're not allowed to call it sandblasting anymore. And this is a, often the kind of stuff that we have here with this. A couple of them, you have an air compressor, an after-cooler. It goes into a breathing air filter, a CO monitor, a breather box to the worker or through a, uh, or another thing is a breathing air compressor to the worker. And this is typically how this is set up here. Now, this is right out of the DOT guide, Department of Transportation Emergency Response Guide. So how do we know we have a chemical incident? Dead animals, bird fish, lack of insect life, unexplained odors, a mass casualty event, pattern of casualties, blisters, or unusual liquid droplets, different looking areas, low-lying clouds, unusual metal debris. I tell you what, when the uh, smoke from the Canadian wildfires rolled over, over the mountain and down our street, it looked a little bit freaky. So far, you see that as, oh, well, my God, what's going on out there? For biological hazards, what are we looking for? Unusual numbers of sick or dying people, unscheduled and unusual spray being disseminated, and abandoned spray devices. Why you would hang out for any of these things, I don't know. I'd get the heck out of there. DOT guide, what are we looking for? Uh, again, with radiologicals uh, hazards, containers with radiation symbol, also known as the trifin. Unusual medical debris, heat emitting material, glowing materials, sick people or animals. So what do you do? Any of this stuff. For according to the emergency response guide, no. Uh, avoid using cell phones, radios, etc. Within 100 meters of the site because you may be detonating a bomb with those. Notify your local police. Set up incident command upwind and uphill of the area. Do not touch or move suspicious packages. Uh, worry about secondary devices. Uh, during the first uh, World Trade Center bombing, there are two devices. We are all aware of the first device. Well, there was a second device set to go off when second when first responders came in. That never went off. Avoid contamination. Limit access only necessary people in evacuate area. I tell you what, if you're in the general public, just get the hell out. Don't rely on your nose. You can't plan for unforeseen events, but you can plan from what we learned from before. This is the disaster management uh, uh, hexagon. Had to think for a minute, right? Six-sided figure. And the disaster management cycle, other way of left or right of the bang. So we had, uh, we're right now, 
were in on the COVID-19 in the mitigation area, if you can see my cursor, and preparation for the next one. That's what we should have been doing all along. You're prepping for the next one. You can go to ready.gov for more info. And we all know about this stuff, right? Well, it's right from the CDC here. Stay away from people. Also distancing. Mask, covering your mouth and nose, disinfect high contact areas and touch areas, stay at home as much as possible, all of that stuff. Final reminders, right? Don't get it in you, don't get it on don't don't get in you, don't get it on you, don't bring it home. That's what I have for that. So how do we wrap things up here? We're going for an hour and fifteen minutes now. What's a safety person to do? Increase capacity. Now, this is the other thing. Because the safety people often get blamed for enforcing this stuff, and managers often say, well, we're not there. That's safety's fault. What I would suggest you do is make sure that any direction you get as protocols, especially if you're a consultant, you get everything in writing. I got it in writing up to the point of being a royal pain in the neck. I didn't say that. Or they use another body part. Well, I was a pain in the neck. If you want me to enforce these rules, you're going to have to give it to me in writing, which means you have to have a discussion and everything else because you're going to blame when they get thrown off the job, when they get fired, when they did this or that. Sick. They're going to blame the safety person. So it's sort of like dodging the bullet here. With that, uh, again, with me, I'm uh, had the credentials. I'm not the only one out there. The credentials to write the plans and the experience and everything else with this stuff, but often we're uh, you know uh, I might write this email, I, I might write this, I might set the standard, but that's not normally the case. So if human resources is doing this, have human resources make out the email with this stuff, write out the documentation. This is what we're doing, and again. Managers and supervisors often blame the safety person. I know I went through this multiple times. We know blame fixes nothing. However, you got to hear all your bases, CYA. So final questions here. What are you going to do? What are your risks? What's your management's opinion? What's their approach? What's the opinion of your government on this? Remember, sovereign immunity here. And it can't be held liable for anything. Are you prepared? Who is going to be held liable with this? Check with your insurance agent. Maybe they have some language that they want to have inserted into your contracts, into your uh, company procedures here to limit liability. Now, we just went through all of this stuff in an hour and 15 minutes. Why couldn't the CDC go through all this stuff? what the limitations are and everything else. How about since the time of COVID, when we were in the whole thing of the uh, disaster mitigation uh, hexagon here, and they have different graphics for this stuff. All right, remember this? We're right here in the preparation phase.
just kind of mitigation we're in preparation what are you doing to prepare ask now that we have and all different reports that we're going to have go back into lockdowns and everything else ask your employer what what are we going to do for fair how are we going to prepare september 2020 i knew we were going to have an issue and uh, or 2019 i knew we were going to have an issue why well, the respirators disappeared from the market Try to get a respirator in October 2019, September 2019. That's when I knew something was going to happen here with this. Way back at, uh, during the pandemic, I had a podcast. We can go look that up. Record everything that happened to remind our posterity what happened. I grew up with stories from my grandparents on the Spanish flu. During uh, uh, 1918, 1919, in Germany, during World War I, I went and I read personal accounts and everything else of that and some other technical documents on that. It's important that we write this stuff down, not on a computer, where things can get deleted, lost, forgotten. Write it down on paper. Write your own book on this what your experiences were, if only just for your family. So we don't lose any of the knowledge, what we learned from this situation. Because as many people have said, uh, Lord Acton was one of them. that say that those who don't study his history are doomed to repeat it. Just a little perfunctory reading on uh, the Spanish flu would have indicated how people were going to react. People want agency. People want to do what they want to do. It's human nature. They don't want, don't want their freedoms impeded in any way. So share those stories, your experiences, write them out on paper, plan things out, ask your employer what you're going to do, and we'll get through this next COVID season. And it may not be COVID next time. It could be something else, any one of the other emerging diseases out there. Thanks for listening to this hour and 21-minute program here. For Safety Wars, this is Jim Pozel. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen. <laughs>